So to prime you for this message, I'm going to take a survey. Raise your hand if it's a yes. First question. Have you ever said, I can't believe I did that again? Okay. Have you ever been disappointed in your own personal behavior? Have you ever wondered like, I'm saved. Why do I still struggle with this? Am I a moron? Okay. Have you ever thought to yourself, I thought I would be different by now. And I've got to leave. You guys are bad people. (laughs) Good, bad company corrupts good morals. I'm out of here. I said that in last service. This person in the front row said, no, it's the other way around. It's you. I went, that was awesome. High five. (laughs) She's good. Don't mess with her. Okay, so most likely we answered yes to one of those. I think if you look at Genesis... What it's supposed to do to you is it's supposed to show you, hey, you're normal. You are normal. So we tend to put like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob on these pedestals that Genesis never puts them on. And what you see really in Genesis is this. God makes his promise to Abraham and to his descendants, but what you see is the carrier of the promise is actually part of the problem. Like, There's a virus in them that's in everybody else because Abraham lies about his wife and is deceptive. And Isaac plays favoritism and does this crazy stuff. And Jacob, who we're with right now, oh, he takes the cake, doesn't he? So if you're new, let me catch you up on this guy named Jacob. Jacob, his name means heel snatcher or deceiver. And that's exactly what he is. He dresses up like his brother, goes in, lies five times to his dad, steals his older brother's blessing. His older brother finds out about it and says, I'm gonna kill you. So then dad sends him away, go away. Sends him to Laban's house. So Jacob at this low point in his life when he's a liar, deceiver, sent away from his home, travels. Comes to this place called Bethel. He's all by himself, he has nothing. Rock for a pillow and it's that night, the heavens open. He sees this staircase of of God and the angels descending up and down. God stands beside him and makes these promises to him. I'm gonna keep you, I'll be with you, I'll bless you, and I'll bring you back to this land. I'm going to be with you. Now you would think if you had that kind of experience with God, you'd be changed. You wouldn't struggle anymore. Well, is that true for Jacob? Uh Uh-uh. For the next 20 years, he and his uncle Laban just go back and forth, lies, deceits, family problems, issues, just bad, bad, bad. So God finally says, okay, that's it, go home. So he packs up all this stuff, heads home, but he's worried about one thing at home, which is his brother Esau, who the last time he saw him wanted to kill him. So he's thinking he's gonna kill me. You know the story. In Genesis 32, he wrestles with the one. I just call him the one. Hosea would say it was God. He wrestles with God the Son all night long, and then God the Son touches him and changes his name from Jacob, heel snatcher, to Israel, which means prevailer. Now, you would think somebody that had that kind of encounter with God would be changed, right? Well, chapter 33, Jacob meets his brother Esau, and he lies and deceives Esau again. You're like, dude, are you kidding me? 
You can't seem to lick this thing. What's up with you? Right? And then on top of that, God has told him, go back to Bethel. But he doesn't go back to Bethel. He halfway obeys God and he actually stops in this place called Shechem because you can make a lot of money in Shechem. But it's in Shechem that the worst moment in his life happens. Remember that last week? Want me to recap last week? Yeah. <laughs> okay. His daughter gets raped. His boys go in there and kill everybody. Right? It's one of the most, chapter 34 is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Right? Here's how it ends. This is what Jacob says. You can read it with me if you want to. It's the last, second to last verse in chapter 34. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. <laughs> yeah, you just slaughtered a city, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He is now precariously close to being wiped out. All the promises, all this stuff, all the potential, gone. That's where he's at. He's right there. Bottom, bottom. Here's the good news. What we see over and over is this in Jacob's life. God doesn't give up on him. God keeps coming back, keeps pursuing him, keeps showing up, keeps doing this, keeps Bethel, Jabok, Laban, dream, and God's gonna do that again. And what we see in chapter 35 is this. God relights the fire of Jacob's faith. And it's brilliant. So I don't know where you're at right now in your walk. If you're up or you're down, if you're up, make note, because at some point you'll be down. If you're down right now, this is the chapter to meditate on and see what God does and how Jacob responds to God in this chapter. It's brilliant. So I just call this refiring your faith. And I've tried to build it around an analogy of actually literally building a fire. Like, I think you can do that here. And when I went through it a couple weeks ago, I actually found 10 things that happened in this chapter that are really good, but I can't do 10, 10 things in a Sunday. So I'm gonna do five and mark them down because most likely you're gonna be disappointed with yourself. You're gonna wonder what happened to you and you might just need these things to rekindle your faith, all right? So are you ready? One person is. I'm ready too, so that's two of us and I think I matter a lot because I have a microphone. So we're gonna go. Number one, if you're gonna build a fire, what's the first thing you need? Kindling, wood, right? You need fuel. What's the fuel for this revival? Look at verse one, chapter 35. God said to Jacob, what's the kindling for our faith? God's word. God's word. The kindling, where it begins is with God's word. So I podcast this guy named David M., He's a researcher, and I listened to it last week because I was interested in, the title was, uh, what's the one thing that helps you persevere in faith? And so I'm thinking it's going to church, mission, serving, listening to great sermons. Guess what it was? Reading God's word. He goes, the number one way we can predict if somebody's gonna persevere in the faith is not studying God's word, it's simply reading it. 
having that reading, doing that. That's why last year in January, we started as a church reading through God's word. Maybe you've joined us, maybe you haven't, jump in. Well, Matt, why is it so important to read God's word? I'll give you a couple reasons. There's a bunch more. Number one, Hebrews 4.12 says this about this book. It says it's active and alive. Isn't that a weird way to describe a book? Have you ever looked at your bookcase and been like, that book there is alive. Look out, it's got a crazy look in its eye. Am I jump out? No, it's a strange way to describe a book, active and alive. So why is it? Here's why I think it's alive. I read a bit and I don't reread books. Some people do, I can't do it. I get bored by them. I can read them once and that's it. There's only one book that I reread. It's this one right here. And I grew up loving the stories of like David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den. They were awesome. And guess what? I reread them today and I still love them. There's something about this book. This is probably, I'm gonna say the 25th, 26th time I've been through the book of Genesis. And this time as we're going through it together, my mind is being blown by this book that I've read 25 times. You know why? Because it grows with you. It matures with you. It's the only book that can do that. It grows because it's alive. Secondly, it's active. I try to think of like, what's an analogy of something that's alive and active in your life that even if you don't want to, just because it's around, it changes you. Guess what I thought of? A toddler. (laughs) Who here has had a toddler in their life? Has it changed your life? Have you had to like make notes out about how your life was gonna be changed or did it just happen to you? I'm going to sleep less, number one. Number two, I'm gonna care less about the way I look when I take him to preschool and I will not get out of the car because I'm in sweats and flip-flops, right? No, it just happened. You're like, I can't even, uh, just, ah. Because it's active and alive. That's God's word. It's active and alive. When when you're around it, it, it just has a power of its own. Jesus says this about it. He says, it actually cleans you up. John 15, three. It's like this. I made a mud puddle a while back because toddlers love mud puddles. So why not make a mud puddle? And after it was all muddy, I noticed there was this little stream of clean water going into it. And I started to see at the edge there of that clean area, it just started to kind of expand. I came back a couple hours later, guess what? It was crystal clear. That's what God's word is. It just kind of, it trickles into you and starts to clean you up. It just cleans you. Psalm 119.11 says this, it protects you, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It protects you. Here's my best example. I don't have a better one. I've used it before, but it's this good. It's of Charles Stanley. If you wanna know a great preacher, listen to Charles Stanley. He's awesome. And he has this story about when he was a little bit younger. He's an older guy now. And he was going to these Bible conferences and doing them and all that kind of stuff. And he had finished this Bible conference and he was now heading back to his hotel room in a elevator all by himself late at night, heading to an empty hotel room. And he's going up the elevator and it stops and the door's open. In walks this very attractive young lady and she gets on the elevator and the doors close behind her and it's Charles Stanley and this young lady. And so Charles Stanley, who's a gentleman, Southern gentleman, says, what floor can I get for you? She looked at him and said, whatever floor you want. Uh-oh, someone said, 
Yeah, uh-oh. And so he's like, all right, how about the basement? How about hell for you, lady? He did not say that. He said, in that moment, what happened to him was this. His brain started to remember all these verses that he had read. Psalms, David and Bathsheba, Psalm 51, Proverbs chapter six. The man that commits adultery is not wise. He destroys his own soul. Galatians 5, don't you know that fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of earth? And in that moment, those firing verses protected him. And he said, no, thanks. It protects us. This is why. Read God's word. You can read through God's word in about 10 minutes a day in one year. That's it. That's what we're asking you to do. So if you have not done that, jump on our website. We're in John, like, John 10 right now. Brilliant place to begin. And just say, I'm gonna finish out this year reading God's word, allowing it to protect me and to cleanse me, to be active and alive in my life. So number one, in reviving, you gotta have kindling. Number two, if you're gonna make a fire, number two, you gotta have a plan. So perhaps you've had the privilege of watching somebody that does not know how to make a fire, try to make a fire. Isn't that fun? You're just like, oh, that will never work. Oh, that is, that is stupid. Whatever you're doing right there will never work. So that person, what they end up doing is either they throw a lot of like newspaper on it, which actually puts out the fire because of all the ashes, or they go and they get the lighter fluid or gasoline, which is a great way to take care of your monobrow because you're going to get singed, right? So there is a certain way that you need to make a fire. If you don't know how to make a fire, Google pyramid fire because it is the most efficient way to make a fire. The heat goes up, consumes the top, and then it falls into itself. Pyramid fire. You gotta have a plan. If you're gonna make a good fire, you better have a plan. Look what God does when he's refiring Jacob's faith. Look at the rest of verse number one. He gives him a plan. Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, and make an altar there. Super simple. No complexity here. He doesn't have to interpret it. Here's what I want you to do. You're in the wrong city. Go to where you belong. Stay put there and build an altar there. You gotta have a plan. We have plans for everything in life now. Do you have a plan for how you're going to mature as a follower of Jesus Christ? I hope you do. I hope you have that kind of plan. Because I've seen plans or goals transform somebody. So Paul in the New Testament, he says this, it's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He compares what we're doing in following Jesus to a race. And he essentially says there, be in this race to win it. Be in it to win it. And then he begins to give details of how he does things. He says, I don't zigzag in my race. Right? If you're trying to win a race, you don't run this way and that way. You run directly towards your goal, towards your plan. You got a purpose. You don't zigzag because zigzagging wastes energy and you lose. You better have a goal, a purpose, a plan. I watched a goal, a purpose, a plan actually transform a guy. His name is Josh Bossard. And we went over together to the mission field in Vanuatu. And I was just getting to know him. He's a great guy and a little bit younger than me. And I started to ask him as we're traveling, as we get there and we're living together, I said, what are you gonna do when you're done here? We're there for one year. What are you gonna do when you're done? He's like, I don't know. And he kind of just kind of muddled around, didn't know what he's doing until about halfway through that year, 
he all of a sudden decided, I am going to be a missionary to China. And he started getting a plan in place. He ordered these cassette tapes, this is 1998, and started to, to learn Chinese. And all he had there was, remember those old tape recorders with like the speaker in the center of them? Remember those old ones? They're so awesome. They're probably vintage worth a lot of money now. All he had was one of those. So he had one of those and he would put the tape in there and just press it. And it'd be like, uh, it, it would teach you how to say a word. It'd be like, say, xing wa. He'd be like, xing wa, xing wa, xing wa, xing wa. Like hours and hours of xing wa, xing wa. I was like, ah, insane, insane. <laughs> so he starts to just learn Chinese. So in November, when I'm, heading back home here, and I've been in the tropics now for a, almost a year. I have acclimated. It hasn't touched 79 degrees in a, 10 months. Like I haven't, 80 feels cold to me. I came back here, I was freezing. Didn't help that I was wearing a grass skirt, but you know, that was just to freak out my fiance. So freezing, he leaves, same place, and he goes to this place called Harbin, China. Average winter temperature, minus 18 degrees. The nickname of that city is Ice City. When he told me he was gonna go there, I said, bro, when I see the nickname Ice City, that means not God's will. It's just, God does not want people living there. <laughs> he goes there, ends up getting an apartment with this guy from Russia. And this guy from Russia learned all of his English from watching blockbuster movies. So Josh said it was just weird, man. We'd be sitting there and be like, I'll be back. Bro, you're going to the bathroom, man. You don't use it there. <laughs> and then God just started, you talked to him, it's unbelievable. What happened with him? He would like wake up in the morning and he'd be, you know, I think I'm supposed to go to the train station. He'd go down to the train station. This happened to him so many times. Somebody would be coming in from three or four days away and they would say, God told me to come here because I was gonna meet an American and I'm supposed to bring you back to my city. Because then Christianity was much more under the cover of like persecution in 1998 than it is now. So it was just, it, he's got stories you cannot believe. You got this plan. You have a plan. Jacob was given a plan. Here's what I want you to do. Wrong place, move to the right place, stay there, build an altar. We have a plan at Edgewater that, that we feel helps you move forward in your faith. And so there are four things that we value here. And we'll try to, we'll, we'll, you'll constantly kind of hear about them. And the four values we have are number one, corporate worship. That's what we're doing right here. When we get together as a group, we think, and the Bible seems to back it up, something happens when we get together with a group of people. That cannot happen if you podcast at home or listen to praise music at home. Those are good things. But Jesus says where two or more are gathered, I'm there. There's something special that happens only in the corporate gathering. There's thunder, if you would, here. So we say, first, corporate worship. But then nextly, our next value is this, community groups. So community groups are the smaller group where people know you and you know them, where you pray for each other, where you walk with each other, where you love each other, where you help each other when they need help and they help you and there's this beautiful body life connectivity that's really important. So that's corporate worship or that's community groups. Then number three is celebration. Where we think that as believers, no one has it better than us. We've been saved and sanctified. 
we are kings and queens of our God and creator, Jesus. We have an inheritance that's indescribable, that will not change, that will not fade. Are you kidding me? No one has it better than us. Let's celebrate. And then lastly is mission. We think as the believer, you're, also, you're not just saved from something, you're saved for something. That God has good works for each of us to walk in. And so we need to discover how God wants to use us in our families, in our communities, in our jobs, and whatever. So if you're here and you're just coming corporate worship, hey, that's awesome. Check out, make sure we're the kind of place that you want to dive in with. And then we'd say, number two is join up for a community group. Get into that because mission takes place there and celebration takes place there and a lot of other things take place there. But minimally, have a plan. God, how am I gonna grow? I don't wanna just stack wood on the ground. I wanna have a plan to do it. So first, kindling. Second, plan. Thirdly, if you're gonna make a good fire, you have to have space. So I made a fire with Myron. He's my four-year-old. And he was trying to help me make a fire. And the biggest mistake a kid makes about fire is what? Too much stuff. So I'm trying to start it, right? And he just keeps dumping on more and more stuff and it keeps going. I'm like, buddy, you gotta wait a little bit. You gotta have enough space so that the fire gets out and the air gets in. So you gotta have space. We can have things that block out and clog what God wants to do. You gotta have space. So look what happens with Jacob now. Step three. Verse two, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, so this is his 11 sons, his wives, servants. Listen to what he says. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Is that shocking? Jacob has been following God now for 30 years. What does he have in his house? He's got idols in there. Like I thought, Jacob, you'd be so much further than this. You'd be so much better than this. He's not. He still has idols in his own home. I think sometimes we can look at, up at people in the church or wherever it is and think, oh, they're so much better. Well, if you got in their house, you might be shocked. Because there's almost always junk behind the curtains of someone's tent. He's got idols in his home. So he says, we gotta be done with this. He starts to stand up. Wednesday, we'll talk about this. He finally stands up and does what he's supposed to do. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress. And look at this, and has been with me wherever I have gone. Did you catch that? What's in his house right now? Who's with him as well? What's in his house? Who is with him? Is that crazy? We have this idea that unless my house is perfect, unless I get everything going right, God won't be with me. That God will abandon me. If I, if I do something wrong, God's gonna abandon me. What is Jacob saying here? I've got idols in my house. And even though I have idols in my house, God has still been faithful and God has still been with me. It's mind blowing. I, mean, I could go off on that, but I won't. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. 
I know some dad is like, what did that verse just say? His sons gave him their earrings, perfect. So probably the earrings were a marking of what kind of idol they worshiped. There's a linkage between them. So it was a way that you could tell when you're not in your house, oh, you worship that God. So there's a linking. I wouldn't say that this is a verse that you can use to make your kid not wear an earring. You can find something else, but I wouldn't use this one, all right? So here's what we have. We have Jacob getting rid of the junk that's clogging the flame. He knows idols and earrings are a problem. We're getting rid of them. We're clearing our house. We're getting rid of anything that might not or might inhibit the fire God has for us. The New Testament puts this like this. It's Hebrews 12. It says, hey, we've got this great cloud of witnesses around us and we're running this race. So let's lay aside every sin and every weight that besets us. Sins and weights. There are in the Christian life, sin, it's actually singular, and weights that will not get us where we need to go. The sin there is singular. And I think the sin there actually speaks of this, speaks of unbelief. Because if you look at Hebrews, that entire chapter is about faith. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. But unbelief does this. It's faith. And I think I have talked with people who actually make their issues into their idols. And so they tell me this, Dad, I, they tell me this, Matt, I can't do that as a dad because of this. I can't be that kind of husband because of this. I can't get free of drugs because of this. I can't, whatever it is, they have some kind of an issue that now they're so focused on this issue, they're saying, I can't be that. I'm always gonna be an addict. I'm always gonna be a person that loses his temper. Really? You've made an idol out of your issue and that's gonna hinder you now. The sin of unbelief snuffs out the fire of faith. And so the very next verse in that book says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The key is not to put your eyes on yourself. Abraham, who's called the father of faith, he did this one thing. He said he considered not himself. The, the walk of faith is stop considering yourself. Don't you think Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, don't you think he can change you? Don't you think he can set you free? Don't you think he can remake you? I think some of us need to repent of the sin of unbelief, believing that you can't be different. You'll always be this way. That's unbelief. Say, Jesus, show me your power and your glory and your strength and transform me. So that's the sin. Wait, Wait weights are just personal. Things that inhibit what God wants you to do, right? So it's speaking of a race. A weight would be like this. It'd be like somebody that shows up to run a marathon, the Boston Marathon, and he's wearing cowboy boots, skin-tight Wranglers, and a belt buckle that weighs eight pounds with his name on it. Now, is that illegal to dress like that? No. It's stupid to dress like that if you're running a marathon, but not illegal. That's a weight. And weights are personal. And I do this from time to time. I just look at my life and I say, Lord, is there any weights? Is there any things that I'm engaged in that's not getting me where I wanna be, not getting the plan that you have for me? So I can't have a TV around me. 
It's not a sin. Some people can handle TV. I can't. Because when I watch TV, it's like it just, it, it's like has this radar beam that grabs me. and I'm like, mm, I'm disengaged from life. And I'm like, I'm tired. I deserve it. I just want to watch a little bit of TV. Well, I watch TV. I'm more tired when I'm done watching TV. It's not like it refreshes me. So, you know, I don't want a TV. A phone. Someone just asked me this last, last Wednesday. I heard you don't have a cell phone. I said, I don't. He said, why don't you have a cell phone? And so I gave my two reasons. Here are my two reasons. I don't have a cell phone. Number one was this. Um, have you heard of phantom vibrations? Yes. Yeah. It's where you put your phone on vibrate, you put it in your pocket and you're walking along and all of a sudden it feels like your phone just vibrated. So you go to grab the phone and there's nothing. Well, I Googled that. Here's what happens. It's your brain knowing that we all want to be needed and wanted and desired. We all have that innately in us. I just want to be wanted and needed and desired. So your brain does that. And so your brain sends this little signal that sounds like, feels like you're wanted, you're needed. And then you grab your phone, you open it, and your brain's like, psych, no one wants you. I was like, whoa, that's insane. It's my own brain like messing with me. I can't have this in me anymore. So that was the first reason. The second reason was this. With phones now, it's super easy in awkward situations to simply pull out your phone. So if you're around a group of people that you don't know very well, or you're getting to know, or you're in a situation where you uh, don't know anybody, what, what do people do now? Phone, right? Because now you don't have to try to start up a conversation or get to know people or engage in them. And here's the thing, my business is people. My business is people. Love God, love people. So I have this device now that's giving me an out. So I'm like, hey, I'm busy, man. People need me. They want me. See, see, I want you like, I have this device that actually gets me out of what I'm supposed to be doing, engaging people and helping them and loving them and learning them and knowing them. So I said, I, I, I can't do that for me personally. It's a weight. No, but I'm not putting this on anyone else. This is me. It's how I used it, right? And so just Wednesday night, I'm at a soccer game right before Wednesday night Bible study. And there's this guy there that shows up. I haven't seen him in a year. So I start talking with him and, and he's telling me, I'm asking him, how you doing, man, what's happening? Because I'm looking for conversations because I don't have a phone. So I'm having this great conversation and he goes, I'm doing as good as I've ever done in my life. I said, why? He goes, eight months ago, I made this decision that's changed my life. I said, what was it? He goes, well, you know, we, I've talked with him a bunch. You know that, you know, I, I'll drink a little bit. I said, yeah. So he said, well, Eight months ago, I quit drinking 100%. I haven't drank since then. I said, what brought you to that point? He said, here's what brought it to a head for me. I found myself at night so wanting to go away in my little study area, my little den, and have a couple beers that I quit engaging with my kids. I would find excuses why I couldn't play with my kids or hang out with my kids or do something with my kids because I so wanted to go into my little study and have a couple beers. And he said, eight months ago, I'm in my study by myself. I'm drinking a couple of beers. I hear the kids playing and doing their thing outside. And I just, my heart broke. He said, I don't want that for my life. That's not the goal I want. So he said, I got down on my knees and I just prayed and said, God, take this thing from me. I haven't had a beer since. Now I had that conversation. You know, I, I think that's getting rid of weights as well because I didn't have this weight called the phone. If I had a phone, man, I know me. I'd be there just doing this. That's weights. 
I think as Christians, we should be always evaluating, God, I want your wind and I want your flame to consume me. Is there something I'm doing that's blocking that? Do I need to clear my house? Is there something that's inhibiting what you wanna do with me? And you get rid of it, just like Jacob did. So if you're gonna build a fire, gotta have kindling, have a plan, gotta thirdly, importantly, you gotta make sure and get rid of anything that's blocking that fire, that air, and then fourthly, if you're gonna build a fire, guess what you need? Fire. fire. You gotta have fire. Without fire, there's nothing, right? So I studied a little bit on uh, fire, and, and here's what fascinated me. Um, science says this. What makes humans humans is our language, complicated language, and number two, fire. We different from every other living thing. We alone have complicated language and we have fire. And they said, wherever we have gone and excavated or looked, every modern tribe, ancient tribe, every city, there's always been fire. They say that the human brain, it consumes so much energy and, and cooking it actually helps break down food so you can digest it better, that without fire, we couldn't have our brains. That's how important it is. So fire is actually what makes us human. But what did we find out? What did we find out about fire this summer? It's destructive. It's dangerous. Look out. So it's the very thing that makes us human. But then there's the other side of it is like, oh, look out. Fire's destructive. Be careful. It can also destroy just as easily. We need fire. Here's what I mean by that. Look down at verse six. Jacob came to Bethel, Luz, what's the old name, which is in the land of Canaan, and he built, and all the people were with him, and there he built an altar, and he called it El Bethel. El means God, Bet means house. So literally, Bethel is house of God. He builds this altar and he calls it God, house of God. Is that cool? Jacob puts the L in Bethel. Jacob puts God where he's supposed to be, if you would. Puts God back in his house. Because you can have a Bethel without God, right? Have you ever been to a church where it seems like they have everything, right? Praise music, uh, guys with skinny jeans on, videos, lights, everything, but there's just no fire. You're like, oh, there's, just no, there's no L here because you, you gotta put the L in Bethel. God's not desperate. If we don't want him here, he won't be here. So Jesus, I think, gives us two analogies of this. First, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, chapter five, here are the bad things that will interfere with my fire. Lost, adultery, temper, okay? But then chapter six, here are good things that will interfere with my fire. Giving, prayer, and fasting. Because if you're doing those three things for the wrong reason, God says this, Jesus says this, yeah, there's no reward. God's not desperate and needy. If you're going to church or you're doing the stuff that you're doing for the wrong reasons, because you don't want fire, God's like, fine, I'm not desperate. Then you have Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaking to these churches and he's outside of one of the churches and he's knocking on the door and what is he saying? Let me in. Let me in your church. Put the L back in Bethel. 
Let me into your church. But I think sometimes we don't actually want fire because fire is dangerous. I think sometimes we're afraid of fire, right? Who here has been burned by fire, right? There's a danger to it. So we kind of have this kind of, it's what makes us human, but on the other side, it's like, oh, that's scary. Because if I let his fire actually consume me, what will happen to me? Am I gonna become one of those Jesus freaks? Will I have to share my faith with my coworker, my family? What will my friends think of me? What will my kids think of me? What will my parents think of me? What will my dog think of me? I don't know if I want that because it's dangerous. Fire, fire is dangerous. But without fire, it's all fake. It's just a stack of wood. Without fire, it's all fake. I want fire. I want to be consumed. Well, how does that happen? Well, throughout history, you can read church history. There's all these different kinds of, of ways. You know, you got to speak in tongues. You got to do worship for like 17 hours straight. You have to weep. You have to repent. You have to read God's word. You have to write doctrine. Like there's all these ways and there's truth to all of them probably. But I think ultimately every Christian would agree on this. It's Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by might. It's not by power but it's by my spirit. It's not how we arrange the music up here, or how many drums we have or how our speakers are. It's not any of those things. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Fire comes by God's spirit. And in Acts chapter two, you see that. God's spirit comes and it's like tongues of fire. There's fire there. That's ultimately what it is. How do we get his fire like that? I'm not sure. But I desire it and I want it. And there's been this one verse that's been like in my brain because I've always read it wrong. And you will be very disappointed in me because it's such a simple verse. It's Romans 10 verse nine, it says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's a salvation verse. I have read that verse for 27 years like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your savior and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Because savior is safe. He's my savior and he is. And it's safe, he saved me, awesome. But it doesn't say that. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Kyrios in the Greek. Term used for the emperor, the Caesar, the most powerful person in the, in the land. The one that says and you do the one that held life and death in his hands, Caesar. If you say Jesus is your curios. See, that's dangerous. Because if he's your king, you can't say no. Because if he's your king, what he asks you, you do. Maybe that's where it begins. Is Jesus your king? That's fire. He's my king. I do what he asks. Then lastly, lastly, is smile. You've got a fire. Smile. You, different than every other thing that's created on this earth, you alone, Amago Day, have fire. You have fire. You are different. Your identity is different from everything else. Genesis 1, let us create a class of beings that's like us called the Amago Day. 
So look at what happens here. It's verse 10. And I'll be fast. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You have been heel snatcher, deceiver, liar, halfway obedient. You've been this guy. That's your name. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he, God, called his name Israel. Smile. You're something different. Jacob, your whole life, you've been this over here, liar, deceiver, all this bad stuff. I don't call you that anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You're a winner. Literally, Israel means prevailer. You're a prevailer. You know how powerful that is? Your secret identity, you're a super, superhero, Jacob. Your secret identity is winner, prevailer. Do you know how powerful that kind of speaking into somebody's life is? I'll give you an example. Five weeks ago, Phil Comer came here and he shared. Great guy, love him. He began his message by saying this. He said, um, what I've heard and what I've talked about is this, like Matt's the best husband and best father here. Were you here for that? I just went, oh man, I'm so set up. There's no way you can ever meet that, right? Because here's what I know. I know I am at best an average dad, which still means I'm better than half of you. <laughs> That's what the average means, right? <laughs> so don't get arrogant, I'm better than half of you. I don't know what half that is. But here's what for the last five weeks has happened to me. I've said this over and over. What would a really good dad do here? What would a really good husband do here? What would the best dad in the world do right here? And I think maybe I'm above average now, just a little bit, because that's what those kind of words do to you. That's what God does to Jacob. This is who you have been, liar, deceiver, all that stuff. That's not who you are anymore. I don't see you that way anymore. I see you as prevailer. Live up to it. Satan wants to condemn us with all this. You're a deceiver. You're a liar. You're a failure. You'll never be different. And then God comes and says, no. No, you're, you're my winner. Do you know that? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this to you and me. Old things are passed away. Jacob's gone. All things have become new. You're Israel. That's who you are right? The New Testament says this. It's 1 Peter 2, 7. It says that you are a royal priesthood. You're royalty. Do you know in the old world, there are three ways you became royalty. You were born into it, you were adopted into it, or you married into it. What are the three metaphors that speak of how we are engaged to God? We're born again into his house, we're adopted into his house, and we're married into his house. You are thrice royal citizens of King Jesus. That's what you are. You can call me King Matt. I'm serious. Thrice royal. You are the very dwelling place of God's spirit. The place that God says, I'm never gonna leave you, but I got idols in my home. Just like Jacob, I won't leave you. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am with you and I will not leave you. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. You are like a tree planted by the rivers of water. 
who will bring forth fruit in their season. And whatever you put your hand to will prosper. This is what the Bible says you are. Satan's gonna come and keep trying to cause you to live down to your Jacobness. And God keeps saying to you, your royalty, that's not who you are anymore. Live up to what I call you to. Smile, smile. You are thrice royal citizens of the court of King Jesus. That's what you are. And we come to this table and we eat at this table. You know why? Because our king wants us there. He, we come because he wants us there. Do this in remembrance. Come to my table. Sit with me. Eat with me. Why? Because you are thrice royal kids of our heavenly father. That's why we eat. Smile. Smile. You are thrice royal citizens of the kingdom of King Jesus. So Jesus Rekindle faith in us. For any in here who feel their Jacobness this day, I pray that they would hear spoke into their soul that they have been reborn, adopted and married into your family. And that you see them as prevailers. That we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. And may we live up to what you call us to this week, this month, this year. May we eat and drink because you want us at your table. You invite us to your table. We belong at your table. Rekindle our faith, I pray. And we ask this in your name, amen.